we're finishing off Mark chapter 11. Uh, but before we jump into our study, let's read the text together. It's a short text, and then we'll pray. Let's, uh, let's read it and pray. So Mark chapter 11, verse 27, Mark writes this, Then they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe in him? But if we say from men, they were afraid of the crowd, for everyone was regarding John to have been a real prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you for your loving kindness to us. You give us your word so that we might know more of who you are. And we ask, Lord, for grace, knowing that some have come from busy weeks, stressful weeks. And so we ask for extra grace that we might pay attention and see what your word has to say about Jesus. And we pray that, Lord, we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, that we would be exhorted to act upon what we know about Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts to understand, ears to hear. And we pray that, Lord, you would glorify yourself through the preaching of your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, here uh, in America, we value our rights, don't we? We value our freedoms. And while we certainly enjoy a wonderful amount of freedom, saying that we are an absolutely free people would be a mistake. Right? After all, there are limits to our freedoms. There are limits to our rights. As many of you know, though we have freedom of speech, though we have the right to say whatever we want, we don't exactly have the right to say whatever we want, right? Just because we live here in America. Right? Take, for example, protesting the government. Right? We are free, technically speaking, to voice our displeasure, but we can't just go into a government building and start overturning tables without consequences. All right, we, you know, if you're in a crowded movie theater, you can't technically just uh, yell out fire, and then they're like, oh, why did you do that? It's because I had freedom of speech. All right, you can't say whatever you want. There are limits to things. Right? You don't have the authority to do whatever it is that you want. All right, and so, going back to where we left off last time in Mark chapter 11, right? Jesus had just finished clearing out the table. I'm sorry, clearing out the temple, right? By overturning tables and driving people who were selling animals and uh, money changers out of the temple. And so imagine the, in, the indignant feelings that the religious leaders had. Who are you, Jesus, to come into our house and to start messing everything up. Now, you also have to remember, this is not a first-time act. This is not something that Jesus did just this one time. He did this before. Or he did this early in his ministry in John chapter 2, shortly after he turned the water into wine at that wedding in Cana. Right? He went into Jerusalem, he went to the temple, and he cleansed the temple in a very similar way. And even back then, right, the Jews who observed him driving out those who sold animals and those who were money changers uh, out from the temple because of their predatory business practices asked him why he had the right, why he had the authority to do 
what he did. But what they did not know, and what we do know on this side of history, is that he had every single right to clear out that temple. Because the temple was God's house. It was his father's house. And as the son, don't miss that, as the son, he had every right, he had every authority to go in and clean house. Now, last time in John 2, the religious leaders, they didn't get involved. But this time, they do get involved because they saw Jesus as even more of a threat. They knew that he, has, he had massive influence and was a threat to their power. So they were trying to figure out how they might, as Mark reminds us earlier in chapter 11, verse 18, destroy him. You see, they didn't just want to discredit him. They didn't want to just make him go away for a little while. They wanted to kill him. If they could challenge his authority, get him to claim that he is God, then they could say, you just committed blasphemy. You're dead. We've got you. But what the religious leaders unintentionally do as they initiate this showdown with Jesus over whether he had authority to come into their territory and make changes is that they reveal themselves to be the ones who have no authority. That they never had full access to this authority because they were just stewards of the worship of God. They can't control it. They were just stewards. The authority over worship does not belong to men, but it belongs to God. He will do as he pleases, and he will do so through his Son. So tonight, tonight, Uh, We are going to observe three scenes that remind us that authority has been given to Christ. Three scenes that remind us that authority has been given to Christ. Now, I was, by the way, tempted to say all authority has been given to Christ. But technically speaking, right, if we're going to practice good Bible study methods, that's not true yet here, right? Because only after Jesus' death and resurrection has all authority been given to him, right? That's why Matthew 28 says, now all authority has been given to me. So, just a little, you know, sneak peek of what you can get in Joe's lesson. Anyways, right? So, authority, though, has been given to Christ. And we're going to see that. We're going to see these scenes. Uh, There's going to be a challenge to Jesus' authority. There's the challenge to the religious leaders. And then the proof of Jesus's authority, right? So those are the three scenes that we're going to observe today. Now, the first scene that we're going to observe is the challenge to Jesus's authority, verse 27. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and, and the scribes and the elders came to him. Okay, we're going to stop there. Now, during this Passover week, right, Jesus and his disciples, they were staying outside Jerusalem in Bethany, during the evenings. But during the day, they would come into Jerusalem and would spend the day there. There, That walk was about two miles, right? It's about two miles, eh, give or take, right? It's probably like more like 1.7 miles, but who's counting? Anyways, right, that's probably the distance from Golden Gate Park, the entrance to Golden Gate Park, to here, uh, this building, right? Um, But the idea is not necessarily staying within the city. It's almost kind of like, oh, well, San Francisco is too expensive to stay in to do business, or to stay in, but, uh, and I have business in San Francisco, but I'm going to stay in Daly City because the hotel rates are cheaper in Daly City, and then you go into the city, right, because we kind of have that, um, you know, that, that's where the business is, right? It's that kind of mentality, right? He stays outside of Jerusalem, not because he can't afford it, but, you know, he's got people that he knows there, so he's staying with them in Bethany, right? So again, we see here, they came to Jerusalem, right? So this is the morning, And this is the morning. Jesus and his disciples, they come back into Jerusalem once again, and they go directly to the temple. Now, you have to remember, this is where Jesus had just cleansed the temple the day before. He just cleansed the temple the day before. So, naturally, the religious leaders, they're going to be on the lookout for him, right? Because yesterday he came and he messed everything up. 
And so they're like, oh, well, what if he comes back again? And so they're waiting for him, right? They're waiting for him. And they had an official delegation from the ruling body of Jewish uh, religion there that uh, is called the Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin, depends on uh, how you like to pronounce it, right? But the official delegation had some chief priests, some scribes, and some elders waiting for him. And this was no meeting with the principle for disciplinary action. This was an interrogation to determine fault. It was interrogation with the intent to prove that Jesus deserved to die. And so, verse 28, and so, verse 28, uh, they came to Jesus and began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, just in case, you might be wondering what the religious leaders are asking Jesus about when they say these things. Right? We need to look at that, right? Because these things, we might be tempted, based off of what we read, could be the reference to Jesus cursing the fig tree, right? But is it? And so you have to look at your Bibles. You have to see who was there, who was present for the cursing of the fig tree and the reveal of the, the completely barren fig tree. And that was just the disciples, right? Only the, the disciples were privy to that. It's pretty unlikely that the religious leaders would be like, how dare you, Jesus? How dare you go and curse a fig tree in our land, right? They don't care about that. They don't know about that. What they're really getting at here is, what gives you the right, Jesus, to come into the temple and assault it? What gives you the right to confront our system of worship? as you cleansed the temple, as you took out our tables, as you drove everybody out? What gives you, by, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority to do these things? And in asking these questions, these religious leaders were not asking genuine questions. They're not curious. They're not like, oh, please, Jesus, please tell us. Tell us how did you do this? Why did you do this? By whose authority did you do this? We want to know because we want to worship, right? That's not the intent of their hearts. They are looking, like we've already discussed, for reasons to kill Jesus, right? And the easiest way they can do that is to get him to explicitly claim that he is God or that he is from God. And the irony, of course, is that Jesus is truly God, that he is truly from God. But this hardness of heart that we see in the religious leaders, it was necessary, right? We could look at them and we could stand in judgment of them and be like, dude, what's, what is with you guys? Do you not have ears to hear and hearts to understand? Why are you so dull that you cannot hear what Jesus has to say and believe in him? Right? We could stand in judgment of them, but we also have to recognize this. Right? Their dullness of heart is God-ordained. If they weren't dull of heart, Jesus doesn't go to the cross. And if Jesus doesn't go to the cross, then there's no hope for you and me because there is no death on the cross for our sins. All right, so this is necessary. This is necessary for Jesus to go to the cross. It's an important domino that must fall. Now consider this. Right, the religious leaders, they come to Jesus with the posture of authority. Right? They come to Jesus with the posture of authority as they challenge him. And they say to him, what gives you the right? You can't do this. You must answer to us. But what we'll see in this next scene is that they must answer to him, right? They are coming with the posture, hey, you need to explain yourself. And he says, no, you answer my question first, right? And so now we move on to the second scene that reminds us that authority is given to Christ, which is the challenge to the religious leaders, the challenge to the religious leaders. Verse 29, and Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, some people might look at Jesus' response here and they're just like, 
is Jesus just like dodging the question here? Why won't he answer their question? But Jesus is not dodging their question. Instead, what you see here is actually the typical rabbinic response to being asked a question. Right? Rabbis, those who taught the word of God to the, to the Jewish people, they were known to answer questions that they were asked by asking questions. Right? That's how they taught other people. So Jesus, he's answering their challenge with a question that is designed to get them to think. Right? He's asking them a question that's designed to get them to think. And for this reason, he says he's going to ask them a question, and then depending on their answer, he will, give, he will respond to their question. Now, by the way, just as a side note, and this is how some pastors like to instruct as well. Pastor Henry told me and some of our fellow pastors here at this church about one professor in seminary who used to answer some of the questions that came his way with, well, what have you read? Can you imagine that? Professor, what does this mean in the scriptures? Well, what have you read? I don't know. <laughs> right? But what, what's that intended to do? Right? It's intended to get you to think. Right? No easy answers. You've got to work for it. Right? You've got to strive to dig and study and understand. And as the questioner thinks, right, this provides an opportunity for the questioner to reveal what they do or don't know. But perhaps it could also cause them to answer their own question as well. If you come and ask me a question, I do do this too. Right, and I'm not always looking for a particular answer, right? So don't try and answer me with, a, with whatever answer you think I want to hear. Just let me know what you got. Right, I'm not trying to make you feel bad or anything. I don't have a right answer in mind when I ask questions, so it's not a quiz. Right, it's not a quiz. Sometimes I'm just asking questions to help me understand where you're at, right? what you know, what you don't know, uh, or, and perhaps even to show you that you might already have the answer that you're seeking already. So, you know, just, just a heads up. If I ask you questions, it's not because um, I'm quizzing you or, or whatever, but you know, I'm just trying to, trying to help you uh, un- understand or trying to see where you're at and understand um, yeah, what you do know, what you don't know. Now, how does this relate? Going back to our text, what is this question that Jesus asked the religious leaders? Well, verse 30. Verse 30 says this. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. At first glance, Jesus' question seems a little odd. What does the baptism of John have to do with anything? But when you look more closely at what Jesus is asking, you will realize that this question, it's absolutely brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. The the religious leaders, they want to deny that Jesus has any kind of authority. They know very well that he has made claims to be the Son of God. After all, that's why they wanted to kill him. But they needed something more explicit. They needed to catch him in the very act. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. If Jesus can help them see that John is special, that John the Baptist is special, if Jesus could help them see that John was sent from God, then the religious leaders should have believed in John, and not only John the Baptist, but also Jesus. That is the brilliance of this question. If you recognize that John was a real prophet, then you need to recognize me as the one that John preached about. How do we know this? How can we prove this? When Jesus talks about the baptism of John, he's not merely talking about the baptizing ministry of John. He's referring to the entire ministry of John which can legitimately be summed up as a baptism ministry because he did a lot of that, right? That's why he's called John the Baptist. Anyway, who was John's ministry from? Was it from the heavens, a.k.a. was it, from, was it a ministry that was given to him from God? Or was John the Baptist just crazy? Right? 
Was his ministry from God or was John the Baptist crazy? After all, he wore camel's hair and he ate locusts, right? And he didn't shave. So could he be crazy? Maybe. Was his only authority for his preaching and baptizing the fact that he just wanted to do it? Basically, the question that we're asking here is, why does John the Baptist do what he does? And in John 1, 22 to 23, we have a delegation of priests and Levites ask John the Baptist who he is. So that's why it says here, verse 22, Therefore they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. John tells them explicitly that he is not the awaited Messiah, but he says that he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. In other words, he is the one who paves the way for Messiah. That's why he says, just as Isaiah the prophet said, this is my job. This is who I am. This is my ministry. John the Baptist's answer comes straight from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Now, we don't have time to explore it in full, but in the context of Isaiah 40, the people of Israel are in distress. In Isaiah 39, King Hezekiah, he flaunts his wealth to some of the officials from Babylon, and God tells King Hezekiah that because of that act of pride and that act of foolishness, Israel goes to exile, right? Or technically, Judah goes to exile. It's the end of the nation here. Not just because Hezekiah showed off all his treasures, but also because of the sinfulness that God's people already has. Now, that sounds bad, doesn't it? And we go into exile, which means we die. We're done. And yet, Isaiah 40, God proclaims, a message of comfort to his people, which is why Isaiah 40 starts with comfort, comfort, oh my people. God says, you will go into exile. You will suffer, but I will be the one who comforts you. And how will he do that? Verse three, the coming of himself to deliver. And that's why there must be a voice that cries out in the wilderness, that makes the way straight for the Lord. Right? This is kind of like a medieval messenger. Hear ye, hear ye. Here's the word. God is coming. Right? Make straight the path in the wilderness. Right? That's basically saying we're rolling out the red carpet for God. He's coming. Right? God is coming. He's coming to save He is the one who will deliver Israel from their enemies. He will be the one who fights for them to save them. So John the Baptist, as he's quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3, he clearly understands that he is that voice that was foretold in Isaiah. He is the one who announces that the time is coming soon for God to deliver his people, which is why later on in John 1, when he sees Jesus, he tells his disciples in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And why is this important? And how does this relate back to Jesus' question to the religious leaders? It's important because Jesus is tying his life, his authority, and his ministry to John's life, to John's authority, to John's ministry. If it can be proved that John was indeed the prophet that God spoke of in Isaiah 40, then what should be the conclusion? There's only one logical conclusion. You have no excuse. John was truly a prophet from God, and therefore Jesus, the prophet, or Jesus, the one that John prophesied about, is who he says he is. You need to believe 
who he says he is. You need to believe in him. And so with this in mind, right, with this in mind, we're going to move on to the final scene that reminds us that authority has been given to Christ, and that is the proof of Jesus's authority, the proof of Jesus's authority. There, thank you. So, as we just established, right, Jesus's question that he presents to the religious leaders, it's absolutely brilliant. It is meant to demonstrate that there is only one real answer, right? Because when he asks, is John's, ministry, uh, is John's ministry from heaven or is it from man? He's not giving you another option, right? There's two options. It's not multiple choice. All of the above, no, right? Two options. Either it's from God or it's from man, right? So it's meant to de- this, this question is meant to demonstrate there is only one real answer. And the religious leaders, they understood. They understood exactly what Jesus was forcing them to think about, which is why in verse 31, 31, we see, and they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? Right, so we can see here, right, they're not it's almost kind of like Jesus asked them the question directly, and they're like, oh, hold on, Jesus. And they go, you know, huddle over on the side, and they're like talking, they're whispering among themselves. So what do you think? What do you think? I don't know. Should we answer this? I don't know. I'm not really sure. Uh, right? And they're just going back and forth amongst themselves. Right? So that's what's happening here. Now, when John the Baptist was active in his ministry, he did not hide the fact that he believed himself to be a prophet of Yahweh. Right? He didn't hide that fact. In fact, if we turn back to John 1, we will see John making it very clear that not only was he a prophet of Yahweh, but he also understood his role to bear witness to Jesus being the Christ, Jesus being the Messiah. Let's look at John 1, 32 through 34 real quick. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he abided on him. Right? We're talking about Jesus' baptism, right? With the dove coming down from heaven. Right? And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, the one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and abiding on him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. All right, so if we're using good Bible interpretation principles here, right? John is the one who is bearing witness here, but who is the one talking to John? It's not Jesus, right? It's not Jesus. Because it says here, He who sent me to baptize with water said to me. Jesus would not say that about himself, right? Jesus would not say, John, I sent you to baptize me. Right? It's God the Father who sent John to baptize Jesus. Right? That's why God would say, the one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and abiding on him. Right? That can't, Jesus is not talking in the third person. He's not Yoda. Okay? Right? So we're talking about Jesus here. Right? And so Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. God the Father is active, the Holy Spirit is active here, and Jesus is the one being acted upon here. Right? And that's why John says, I myself have seen and I bear witness, right? or I, bore, I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And this is not a statement that John the Baptist says in private to a few friends. Like, uh, you know, he's just, just like, oh, hey, guys, look over there. That's the Son of God. That's the Son of God over there. Right? He's saying it to other people. He's bearing witness. When you bear witness to somebody, it is in an official capacity. Right? Some good news like this, you're not keeping it to yourself. You're telling other people about it. Right? He said this out loud. He bore witness, meaning he let other people know this is an official declaration. This is the Son of God. Now, of course, we can get sidetracked with some of these details in these verses, but the particular verse that I want us to see here is that verse 33, right? He who sent me. That person is none other than God the Father. Now, 
bring that all the way back to Mark eleven thirty one. Okay. The religious leaders know that instead of trapping Jesus, they themselves were trapped. Because if they recognized that John the Baptist's authority came from heaven, that John's authority came from God the Father. Because God the Father is the one who sent Jesus and sent John the Baptist to pave the way for Jesus. Think of it this way. In failing to believe the message of John the Baptist, it's not just a failure to believe in John. It is a failure to believe in the one who sent John. It's a failure to believe in God. The rejection of John's call to repent of sins is a rejection not just of John, but of God. If you reject John, you reject God. And you reject God himself. Now you have to remember, these religious leaders, they claim that they love God. And that's why they were trying to defend the whole religious system that they're in. They were super involved with ministry and life together as community because, and this is something we don't often, uh, often teach you and tell you, but they believed, right, the religious leaders believed particularly the Pharisees, that if you could get everyone acting righteously, if you can get everyone in the community to believe in God, to live faithfully, to obey all the commandments, then God comes back. Does that make sense? And that's what they believe is that if we can get everybody to live righteously, then the kingdom comes. So it's on us. It is our responsibility to make sure that everybody stops sinning, that everyone lives holy, because if we can do that, then Jesus comes. And we kind of see that same error today, don't we? Where some people think it is our job to bring in the kingdom. If we don't save everybody in the world, then the kingdom doesn't come. That's a good thought. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Because who saves? Who brings in the kingdom? Not us. It's not dependent on us, and it never has been dependent on us. It's Jesus. And again, wait, hold on. I'm not trying to say that missions is not important. Okay? Don't hear me say that missions is not important. Don't hear me say that evangelism is not important. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that we cannot take it as our personal responsibility to bring in the kingdom. No one brings in the kingdom but God. When it's time, it's time. It's not like once that last person gets saved, like ding, 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 we hit the quota. Everyone who got saved is supposed to be saved. We're here. Let's go. Here comes Jesus. Everyone else dies. Right? It's not like that. It's not like that. Right? God is the one in control. God is the one in control. But the Pharisees and the other religious leaders, they thought, no, we are in control. If we can get everyone to live righteously, then God comes back and makes everything right. He will come back and he will fix everything. But in doing so, in doing so, they actually fought against God himself. They said that they loved God. But really what they found themselves doing, or in reality, what they were doing was fighting God. They said they loved God, but they were fighting God all the way. And they did that because they never really knew him in the first place. We don't have time, but we're going to do it anyway. John 8, 47. Jesus, he says here, he who is of God hears the words of God. 
For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying that, well, going back to the imagery of those who um, are his sheep, right? Well, actually, that's later in John 10. But what he's saying here is, if you are truly God's, if you truly belong to God, you'll hear his voice and you'll do what he says. And they say to him, in verse 48, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan? Ooh, bad, right? And have a demon? He says, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There's one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death ever. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death ever. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. And you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. We can go on, but you get the point. They said that they loved God. They said that they know God, but in all of their actions, they proved that they did not know God because they did not do what he said. In their stubbornness, they refused to think that they were wrong. They refused to acknowledge that what was before them was from God. And this is why we know that they are trapped. This is why they know they're trapped, right? Failure to believe John's message is a rejection of God himself. But not only that, not only that, but the alternative answer is also bad for them politically, right? They're not just worried about God. and They're not just worried about what Jesus will have to say, but they're worried about what the people will say. Because as we see in verse 32, but if we say from men, right? So they're, they're weighing their options amongst themselves. If we say from God, he's going to challenge us and say, why don't you believe? In verse 32, but if we say from men, they were afraid of the crowd. For everyone was guarding John to have been a real prophet. The religious leaders, they know that the crowds believe that John was a real prophet. And so as they're thinking about their options, they're thinking about, it would it be good for us politically or even, you know, for our own safety, to say that John the Baptist was a fraud, to say that John the Baptist was a fake. Right? It wouldn't look good for them at all. Notice in this verse, they don't finish the sentence. Right? That's something that we can miss if we're reading real fast. In verse 31, they finish the sentence, right? If we say it's from heaven, if they, we say it's from God, then he'll say, why didn't you believe him? Here in verse 32, it says, but if we say from men and then nothing. Explanation. Why? It's almost as if Mark is trying to get us to see the tension that was there with the religious leaders. That they could think, we might die, right? These people, they might stone us for blasphemy. They could think, oh, these people, they might rebel against us. They might remove us from authority, right? We don't know what their, their conclusion of that sentence is. It's like there's just so many endless possibilities of what could happen to them if they say it's from men, right? They're, they're fearful. It's, like, it's almost as if they're shuddering at the thought of all the things that could happen to them if they said that they rejected John as a real prophet. So instead of answering one way or another, and you remember, there's only two real answers that you can have here, right? There's no third option. But they try and go for the third option, right? In answering Jesus, verse 33, they said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The religious leaders take the coward's way out because they don't want to be exposed either way. They don't want Jesus' challenge, nor do they want the people to turn on them, even though they know they should know the answer. See, the religious leaders, they came into this 
conversation intent on showing Jesus who is the boss. They came into this conversation wanting to show Jesus that they had more authority than him. But in their pride, they couldn't bring themselves to recognize the truth that God was behind Jesus. And so when Jesus responds to their answer by saying, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things, it looks like he's not giving them an answer, but he really is. He really is. He already has. They know they're defeated. Tying his ministry to John's ministry, as the religious leaders understood, that was an answer. That was the answer. And you're actually going to see more of this answer next week when Jesus elaborates on his answer through the parable of the vine growers. Right? That's still connected to this story. Now, what is our takeaway from this showdown about authority this evening? Right? What are we supposed to do with it? Why does God want us to see this interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders? The easy takeaway, of course, is the fact that Jesus has authority. And that his authority surpasses the authority of the religious leaders because it comes from God, right? That's the easy answer. But then again, so what? Right? As you're studying your Bible, we're always asking the question, what am I reading? So what? What is God intending for me to do with this passage? You see, it can be easy to walk away from this message tonight and think, cool, Jesus has authority from God? Got it. I've known it. It's a good reminder, right? Good reminder, preacher. But reminders only work if they lead you to do something, right? Reminders only work if they lead you to do something. If you put a reminder on your phone to tell you to pick up groceries next week, because if you wait for the week after, the grocery stores are going to be crazy, and you look at the reminder and you're like, oh yeah, I should get my groceries for Thanksgiving. And you don't do anything about it. You don't pick up your turkey until Wednesday and you're stuck in line at Costco and it's all the way back to the meat cases and you're like, I hate Thanksgiving. It's your own fault. You ignored your reminders. Right? A reminder is only good if you do something about it. The reminder and proof of Jesus' authority should challenge us to think about how we live our lives as Christians. If you're a Christian, do you live as if Jesus is the only one with authority? Or do you live as if you are the one in charge? Who's in authority? Is it you or God? Do you live believing that, wait, Jesus Christ is basically my guarantee that I don't go to hell, but the rest of my life is mine. I can do whatever I want. As long as I put in my time, as long as I go to church on Fridays, as long as I go to church on, on Sundays, and I'm doing worship stuff, and I'm serving, whatever else I do, doesn't matter. That's a nice, that's a nice thought. But that's not what is reflective of believing faith. Because if you live as if you are still the one who gets to call all the shots and that Jesus is just a part of your values, he's just a part of your upbringing, then you don't honor him any more than these religious leaders did. In fact, you prove yourself to be just like them. Because knowing the truth, you still chose to live like them. Because he's not in charge, you are. Or your career is. Or your dreams and ambitions are. Or your desire to make a ton of money and live a life of ease is. The authority of Jesus in the lives of believers is so much more than I have a better and more moral worldview than you, unbeliever. Right? It is so much more than a reminder that we will continually ignore throughout our everyday lives. 
The authority of Jesus is a reminder for all of us to remember that life is not about us. Our dreams and our goals. But it is about how we might serve our king. And be about his goals and his glory. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that your dreams and that your goals don't matter. I'm not, I'm not saying that you should all abandon your careers and get into the ministry, right? Just stop working, come to church every day, it'll be fine. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that we have to think bigger. We have to think bigger. You can have your dreams, you can have your goals, but how does your pursuit of your dreams and goals have Christ at the center? How does it have Christ at the center? Do you want to buy a house? Great. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with buying a house. Make sure that you're not just looking at it in terms of, it's a good investment for my portfolio. I need to diversify. I have a ton of stocks and need some property. Make sure that you're not looking at it just in terms of, I need a legacy to pass on. I need something to give my kids. It's not wrong to think that, but think bigger. Have the attitude of, Lord, if you will give me a house, how might I use this house for your glory? How might I use your house for your glory to advance the gospel, to bring discipleship to more people? How might I use this house that you give me as something that I can use to love others as you have loved me? Different perspective, but it's one that has God at the center. Do you want to get married eventually? Praise the Lord. It's a good thing that you desire. But make sure that you're not looking at it in terms of how you might have your needs met. Make sure that you're not looking at it in terms of, I just want to be loved. Or you've heard this one especially on reality TV, but I have so much love to give. Because even in that, saying, I have so much love to give. Okay, fine, give it. Love your family. Love the people around you. You don't need to get married for that. Don't just pursue marriage because you don't want to be alone. Brothers and sisters, I know that's hard, right? Because you can use the say, it's easy for you to say, you're married, right? True, I am, right? But even if I wasn't, and you guys, well, many of you who know my story, you know that I got married later. I finished seminary, I became a pastor, and I got married way after that. Don't just do it because you don't want to be alone. Or because marriage gives me the life that I've always wanted. Like, don't do that. Think bigger. Lord, if it is your will for me to get married, please allow me to grow in godliness so that I might help my spouse love you more. Help me use my marriage as a way where my spouse and I can serve you better in the church than we could if we were single. And if it's not the Lord's will, for you to get married, or he doesn't grant you marriage, still think bigger. Still think bigger. Think in light of his authority. Lord, you know that I desire marriage. You know that I desire children. I believe that you are good and that you do good. I believe that you give good gifts to your children. Now, the easy, answer, the easy question could be, why don't you give it to me then, God? Right, that would be the easy question to ask. But here's the question that we need to ask. Or here's the mentality that we need to have. Well, I don't know if you will give me the desire of my heart. Help me to live for you. Right, even if it seems as if God is saying, no, you can't get married. Now is not the time. We have to have that desire of, okay, 
Maybe you'll have it for me later, but until then, no matter what, I'm going to see how I can live for you. Right? We want to pray that God would help us live our lives in such a way where we can show people his greatness and his holiness so that people might believe in Christ and become more like him. You see, it is not loving Christ and pursuing godliness to get what you want. Sometimes we live like that, right? If I go to church, if I worship God, and I serve at church, then I will get the career that I've always wanted. I will get the life that I always wanted. And why do some people get discouraged? Why do some people fall away? Because they live godly and they say, and they don't get what they want, and they say, God, why? I've been faithful. Don't I deserve this? You owe this to me, God. Have I not served you with all my life? But see, we asked the wrong question at that point, right? We've made it entirely backwards. We've made God have to prove his worthiness to us. When in fact, brothers and sisters, we really need to prove our worthiness to him. We've got it completely backwards. God never, ever has to prove himself to us by the very nature of him being God. You should always be asking yourself the question, why am I relevant to God? Not how is he relevant to me, but why am I even relevant to God? Why would he even choose to save me? Because when I look at me, I shouldn't be saved. Right? That is the mentality that we need to have. Right? We want to love Christ and pursue godliness because we love him, because that's what he wants. It's not about us wanting what we want, making him our cosmic vending machine or our cosmic genie saying, well, hey, look, I want these things, go get it for me, right? Because that's not what love is. That is a demand. If we love God, then our joy is not in receiving the gifts that we've always wanted. Okay? In the end, our joy is not in receiving the gifts that we've always wanted. Our joy is in knowing that we lived our lives in pursuit of God himself. And if God is the thing, if God is the one that you've always wanted, then great. He'll give you that. Right? But if it's in the stuff that he gives, he's not obligated to give you that. Our joy is in the fact that we made him known and proclaimed the good news of the gospel to those that he has placed in our lives. And so we come back to the question, how then will we live? How will we live recognizing Jesus' authority? Do you live as if he really is sovereign, that he really is all-powerful, that he really has all the authority? Or are you still the master of your fate and captain of your soul? You're here tonight, and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. This might not sound appealing to you, but you, like the religious leaders, have a choice to make. As you consider who Jesus is, what will you think of him? Is he just a good man? Because if so, then none of this really matters, right? Just have a good time. Live your life. Do whatever. Come to church if you want. Don't if you don't want to. It's fine. But, but, if he really is God, if he really is from God, then your response to him matters. Will you believe in him? Will you turn away from your sins? Will you repent of your sins? Or will you choose to continue to ignore him and look for reasons not to believe in him? If you do, you're certainly free to do so, but you will be just like those religious leaders of Israel. You will have to answer for your unbelief. But this does not have to be the way that it ends because there is hope that if you believe even today 
and turn away from your sins, you will be saved. If you want to talk about this more after, you can feel free to come grab me or talk to the people in your discussion groups or whoever brought you. So, that being said, this evening we examined the authority showdown between Jesus and the religious leaders, and we were reminded that God has given authority to Christ. The religious leaders tried to impose their authority on Jesus only to realize they never, they never truly had any kind of authority. Authority was always God's. It's always belonged to Christ. And so for us, the question remains, now that we've been reminded of Christ's authority, how will we live? Will we live as if he is truly the authority in our lives, or is he just one another, or is he just going to be another voice that we choose to listen to if we feel like it? Right? This is something that we all must ask ourselves. And it's not just me preaching to you, but this is something that we all together must ask ourselves because our natural tendency is to live as if Christ is just one of many options. As if Christ is just one of many voices we can choose to listen to or not. But that is not the case. After all, the label Christians means that we are little Christ, a.k.a. we are Christ followers. That means that if we say that we're Christians, we should look like him. So, beloved, let us strive together to be as much like Jesus as we possibly can because there is no other name by which we, are, we can be saved. And as such, he deserves our unending love and loyalty. And that's what he deserves. That's what he deserves. Will you give it to him? Now, we will have discussion questions this evening. But uh, I know that before we have discussion questions, we're going to do some setup of the sanctuary. Um, so, yeah, sorry. It's not a perfect segue, but I think get you straight out of it. But um, you know, let me review some of the discussion questions with you. So number one, in what areas of life might we be tempted to forget that Jesus has authority over our whole lives? Right? What's that one area of your life where you're like, you can't touch this, God? And I believe in you. I love you, but you can't touch this. This is mine. Right? Do we have that? Right? What can be an area in our life where we might be tempted to be like, no, God, you can't do that. Right? You can be God of my life and everything, but don't you dare touch my career. That's mine. And that's just an example. That's question number one. That's the intent of that question. Question number two, how does the reminder of Christ's authority impact our view of life, both the good and the bad? Right, so in understanding that God is sovereign, that he allows times of testing and trial, how does a reminder of his authority help us change the way that we look at it? Right? How does it shape our perspective on the way that we look at life? Well, our time is gone. So let me pray for us, and then I'll dismiss us. Dear God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word and for showing us the great authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that knowing him requires that we respond. And we know that we tend to respond quickly, that we tend to respond in short ways that aren't really deep, that just scratch the surface of what our true response should be. We recognize, Lord, that we don't always live as if Christ is our authority. We say he is authoritative, but we pick and choose when we'll be obedient. We pick and choose when we'll be faithful. And we ask for your forgiveness for that, Lord, because we know that we don't love you as we ought to. We don't obey you as we ought to. Lord, we don't strive to 
love you and love your mission for the church to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth as we should. So Lord, we pray for your forgiveness. We're grateful for your grace and for Christ's intercession for us when we fail and how it makes up for our failures. We're grateful for all of that, but we pray, Lord, that this evening as a result of hearing your word and being reminded of what Christ's authority truly means that, Lord, we would live as Christians. Not just in name, but in deed. Not just because we have to, but because we love you, and that love for you colors everything that we do. Give us more love for you, Lord. In your sons, then we pray. Amen.